Matthew 5, 17 through 20. But before we get into it, I want to ask you a question. Think back to a time that you got a new smartphone or you got a new smart TV uh, or a new smart car. Everything is smart these days. Have you noticed that? Um, But for all the new smart technology that we have in this world, uh, one thing that I have realized, and sometimes my friends joke with me that I'm uh, 34 years old, but I act more like I'm 84 years old, but one thing I've realized sometimes with all this smart technology is all that it does is shows me how not smart I am. It shows me how little I know about how to use these things. For instance, just a couple of weeks ago, I got a new laptop, and I kept having these reminders flash up on the screen, flash up in the corner of the screen, basically saying, hey, come take a look at all that your laptop can do. And I said, I don't want to take a look at all that it can do. As long as it can uh, do the things that I need it to do, then that's fine. All the bells and whistles, well, we'll worry about those another day. Maybe you have tried to set up a new smartphone and you've tried to set it up with email and with internet and different apps that you want, but then you've just found yourself frustrated. And so you stopped and you said, well, if it makes calls and if it can text message, then that's good enough for me. But then eventually your child or your grandchild says, oh, but you're only using a small part of the functionality of this thing. And they insist on setting it up fully for you only to get it set up so much that Maybe it works, or maybe it's beyond your grasp yet again. Now, maybe you are that child, or you are that grandchild who has tried to set up a device for your parent or your grandparent, and you just shook your head at the capabilities that they had right there in their hand, and they were only using but 5% of them. We shake our heads at this. And we laugh about it when it comes to technology. But I think that we all find ourselves tempted and even doing this when it comes to our understanding of how Jesus fits within the Bible as a whole, particularly how he relates to the Old Testament. We don't realize what we have right before us and the power of it. It seems too complex. It seems too difficult. It seems too out of our grasp. So we'll settle for the low-hanging fruit. And yet in that, we risk ignoring and losing sight of the glories that lie before us in the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to show us some of those glories today. Jesus is going to show us how he relates to the Old Testament. And in so doing, he's going to bring the Old Testament from a black and white silent picture to something that stands before us in 3D, And calls us to behold him all the more. In fact, what I'm going to argue for you from our passage this morning is that Jesus brings to life and fulfills all that the Old Testament shows us. And in this, he calls us to a righteousness that is deeper than we perhaps know and is only found in him. It's a little wordy, so let me say it again. Jesus brings us to life. Or, excuse me, Jesus brings to life and fulfills all that the Old Testament shows us. And in this, he calls us towards a righteousness that is deeper than we know and is only found in him. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Jesus' words. In Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. So three things that this is going to show us this morning. Three things. The first is how we can wrongly approach Jesus and the Old Testament. The second is how Jesus understood himself and the Old Testament. And then the third is how we, therefore, understand Jesus and the Old Testament. So how we wrongly approach it, how Jesus rightly approaches it, and how this shapes how we now must approach the Old Testament. And so remember the question that we're asking as we begin here. Remember the question that we're asking throughout the Sermon on the Mount. That question is, what does a disciple of Jesus do? What does a disciple of Jesus look like? What makes a person a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to understand him? What does it mean to follow him? Well, these four verses, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, they serve actually as the thesis for the whole Sermon on the Mount. I believe that what Jesus says here serves to essentially... Uh, be the big picture idea for all that he is going to flesh out uh, in the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7 through the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's going to bring to color that which we see in just an outline now. So he outlines it for us here in verses 17 to 20, and then the rest of it, he's going to connect the dots and color it out and show us it in its vivid beauty. So first, let's look at how we can wrongly approach Jesus and the Old Testament. So here's what you have to understand. Uh, Jesus is giving this sermon on a mount. He's surrounded by crowds. He's surrounded by his disciples. He's surrounded by those who are fascinated by him as this new teacher on the scene. Now, Jesus was Jewish and his audience was Jewish. And so they were very familiar with their Old Testaments. The only problem is they didn't call them the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. They called them their law, the prophets. The law was the Torah. So they referred to these, they thought of these as their sole holy scriptures. And so Jesus is a new Jewish teacher on the scene, and his new Jewish audience is trying to place, trying to understand what he is revealing about himself and what he's saying about himself as relates to the God that they profess to worship. And so Jesus referencing their holy scriptures he says in verse 17 do not think that i have come to abolish the law and the prophets i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them so what does he mean by the law or the prophets here he refers to them what he means is he's essentially referring to the whole old testament the law or the torah made up the first five books of the old testament genesis exodus uh, numbers genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy excuse me and and so they made up the first five books of the old testament And the prophets were prophetic messages, prophetic words that were shared, that that were interpretation and application of the law for the people of God. So the prophets called the people of God back to obedience to the God who had given them his law. So what we see in verse 17 is some people had the same misunderstandings about Jesus that we have today. Have you ever thought to yourself something like I have thought to myself before? Basically, The Old Testament is hard to understand. The Old Testament has 
messiness, even goriness, confusion, hard to pronounce names. And in all of that that it has that makes it difficult, I'm glad I'm on this side of Jesus because it's like all that hard to understand. Well, Jesus is the, 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 the stamp on all of it, and so we have Jesus, so that's, that's all we need to know. It's the old Sunday school problem, the old Sunday school question, where the answer to every question that you're asked is Jesus. And so some, the, the, the problem with that, though, is that that can cause us to minimize our Old Testaments. And the problem with that also is to cause us to believe that, uh, that, that the Old Testament is not equal in significance as the New Testament. But Jesus tells us here, I, don't you think I have come to abolish these? I've not come to wipe them out. I've not come to erase them. But I've come to fulfill them. Jesus has not made our Old Testaments null and void. Listen to Jesus as he warns such a mindset. He picks up in verse 18. He says, for truly, I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you see that? Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. Not, and he says, not because I have come, but it says until all is accomplished. Understand this. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament will outlast the world. And so he meets us here where we might be tempted to think that Old Testament not so significant. Jesus meets us and look at how he now understands himself and the Old Testament. He says this word, I've not come to abolish them, but then, then, then make note of this word in verse 17. Make note of this word fulfill. The significance of fulfilling it as opposed to abolishing it cannot be overstated. He's saying he didn't come to erase the Old Testament. He's saying I came to enliven the Old Testament. He is the law of God, perfectly kept. He is the message of God, prophetically applied to his people. And he's the destination to which the road of the Old Testament travels. So to understand Jesus, we must understand all that is anticipated about him before he arrived. To cast our Old Testaments aside would be as foolish as meeting a potential spouse and not desiring to learn anything about them before you met. J.C. Ryle, brilliant author, Church leader described the Old Testament as the gospel in its bud, and the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. And Matthew holds this up for us today to see. In fact, I encourage you to go read the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel later today. And what you'll see is I want you to go read the first two chapters. And as they deal with Jesus's conception and his childhood in these chapters, you'll repeatedly read that these events fulfilled what the prophets spoke of previously. Just go read the first two chapters and just note all the times Matthew says this happened so as to fulfill what was written. This happened so as to fulfill what was written. This happened so as to fulfill what was written. What he's holding up here is that the Old Testament are all of these streams that are flowing towards the coast and Jesus is the ocean to which it empties out into. So Jesus says, I have come and I am perfect in my righteousness that the Old Testament anticipates and that its law mandates. 
I have come and I am teaching. I am, I am completely powerful in the prophetic word that I am speaking as I teach as one who has authority and who calls you to obedience to myself. He uses two distinct illustrations. Look at verse 18. And he, look at these illustrations he uses to add emphasis to his point. He says, first, until heaven and earth pass away. This is cataclysmic language for the destruction of creation, for the end of the earth as we know it. This phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, actually occurs 31 times in Matthew's gospel. And what, what we see here is that Jesus, in constantly referencing this, constantly saying, this is the case until heaven and earth pass away. This is the case until heaven and earth passes away. This is the case until heaven and earth passes away. Jesus is keeping us on our toes. And what he's showing us, understand this, lock in on this, is that healthy Christian faith looks back, it looks forward, and it trusts him today and pursues righteousness today. Our faith is not one without a rearview mirror. Our faith is one that is emboldened because of what we see in the rearview mirror. But not only does he reference heaven and earth passing away, but he says not an iota, not a dot. These two things, the iota, the dot, they're the smallest letters and even dots of the Hebrew language. And so Jesus is saying this Hebrew language that was written out, that has your Old Testament law, that has your Old Testament prophets. He's saying, I will dot every I, I will cross every T of the law as I accomplish it. What he's doing with these is he's not only looking at records of old, but he's looking at the calendar of what is to come and saying that it is all tied together in the hand of God working through his son. So as Jesus sat on the mountain and taught, as the Holy Spirit of God ministers his word to you even now, Jesus invites you to board the same bus that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Moses, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, the same bus that they are all riding as they travel through the unending expanse of the wondrous work of God. And as we board that bus, the guidelines that he gives us for citizenship in the kingdom are found in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I've already encouraged you to go read Matthew 1 and 2 and just note all the times that, Jesus, that, the, that Matthew says Jesus fulfilled something. Not only go read that, but feel free later today, this week, to go read the rest of chapter 5. And what you'll see is that uh, every, all the times where Jesus says, uh, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. So you'll see him address murder, you'll see him address adultery, you'll see him address divorce, you'll see him address retaliation, you'll see him address a number of things where he brings the Old Testament law to the fore, and he said, you've heard that it was said, don't do this. But I tell you that even if your heart thinks this, you're violating the law of God. Here's the fascinating thing about how Jesus speaks of himself. And understand this. If, 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 you're, if you're wrestling over a question of, was Jesus truly God? Or did Jesus really claim to be God? Maybe you've heard that claim before. Jesus never really claimed to be God. He just thought of himself as a good teacher. He just thought of himself as, 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 as a wise sage, as a uh, miracle healer of that day. Well, understand this. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, 
when teachers of the law quoted the law, they would say it is written. When Pharisees and scribes would quote the law, they would say it is written. When prophets of the time spoke, they would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus, throughout his Sermon on the Mount and his whole earthly ministry, he does not say, just it is written. He does not say, thus says the Lord, but he says, I say to you. Claiming authority that is equal with that of the God who gave the law and the prophets. Because he is the law and the prophets fulfilled. Now, what does it mean, though, that he is these fulfilled? What does it mean that he brings these to light? Well, that's the next thing we see as he helps us to understand himself and the Old Testament. Follow along as I read verses 19 and 20. Jesus has laid the groundwork. He's laid the foundation of of, um, his relationship to the Old Testament. He says, I have not come to abolish these, but I have come to fulfill them. And then he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying here? Is he saying whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others, that we call the lead, is he saying, I, and then he says, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. I read these, I see a few different things here. Is he saying that I must be more righteous than perhaps I am? I must do things that I don't know that I have the will, that I don't know I have the ability to do the old testament law let me make sure my numbers are correct here the old testament law had 613 different commandments 248 of them were positive 365 of them were negative positives do this the negatives don't do this jesus saying that i must keep all of these well yes and no And let's see what I mean by that, what he means by that. But first, let's consider this word righteousness. You see in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. One scholar, Jonathan Pennington, defines this righteousness that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount as this. This righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, with his will and with his coming kingdom. It is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, his will, and his coming kingdom. And so what Jesus is doing in verses 19 to 20 is this is a play on words. So what, what he's saying is you don't, you, you, you don't sneak in in verse 19 that those who do these things or those who relax these things or teach otherwise, they sneak into the kingdom. No, he's saying that they don't measure up. But then he's saying in verse 20, He's saying, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now we have to ask the question, well, what does it mean? How do I enter this kingdom of heaven? How do I find this righteousness? Well, let's understand a little more. The scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were highly trained experts in interpretation and application of the law of Moses. They would begin training as children, and then they'd be in school until around age 40. They were heavily honored. They were heavily revered in jewish circles scribes were said to know have by memory all of the old testament law they knew how many letters were in the law not just the laws themselves 
And then Pharisees were part of a movement in Judaism that was committed to meticulous observance of the law. Maybe you've read before of the Pharisees. We, we talk about being Pharisaical as a negative sense. You've read of Pharisees who would tithe the, the, the spices that way they had, the dill, the mint, the cumin. Even these things, they would tithe them. They would set them apart for God. They were rigorous in their observance of the Sabbath and of other laws. And so what Jesus is showing us here in verses 19 to 20, grasp this, is he's showing us that if you relax the law or, if, or, or those who, who uh, intensify the law, he's warning us of, in verse 19, the danger of lawlessness. In verse 20, he's warning us the danger of legalism, of believing that we can meet the law in our own will, in our own capabilities. And so what we see here in the Sermon on the Mount, right here, but also as we make our way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we will see that Jesus is setting apart or setting an example of a new law that he calls us to. It's not a new law from the Old Testament law. It is a new law rightly understood, or it is the Old Testament law, excuse me, rightly understood and applied. You see, the problem that Pharisees and scribes had and the problem that so many people throughout the Old Testament had and the New Testament had is the same problem that we all have as well sometimes. And that is thinking that we can make ourselves right with God justified before God in our own actions, in our own law-keeping. And if we don't, we just put the Jesus stamp on it and say, I'm okay. But Jesus calls us to a law that he writes upon our hearts that is deeper than just our obedience, but is born out of a heart that has been radically transformed by him. So what does it mean to be righteous as Jesus describes? Well, we're not going to turn back there because we don't have time. But in Matthew chapter 1, we see an example of the righteousness that Jesus prescribes in the earliest sections of this book. You're familiar with the story of Jesus' conception. An angel came and spoke to Mary and told her, Mary, you are going to bear the child of God. Supernaturally, Jesus was conceived in this virgin girl and yet joseph her betrothed when he found out about this he resolved to treat her well he resolved to 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 not bring her to shame to not bring her to embarrassment or to ridicule and in matthew 1 joseph is described as acting towards her in a righteous manner righteousness is exhibited in mercy. This is what we see that is going to come to light in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness is exhibited in mercy. In fact, in the, in the rest of the chapter, in chapter 5, where Jesus talks about murder, he talks about adultery, he talks about divorce, he talks about retaliation, he talks about uh, two or three other things I can't remember. There's not a, there, uh, these examples that Jesus brings about are by no accident, but they're all related to, or, or they're all tied together by how we treat others. And so Jesus is saying, ultimately, he's saying, I don't want you to act rightly. I want your heart to love rightly. I want your heart to be full of mercy. And that heart is brought about not by any volition of ourselves, but by and through Christ himself. 
So my friend, have you been striving to make God pleased with your actions, with your conduct, with your attempts at righteousness? Or have you been relaxing these commandments because you have thought yourself fine apart from obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ? Let me conclude by asking you one question. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? What does the kingdom of heaven make of you? Are you great in the kingdom of heaven? Are you least in the kingdom of heaven? Or as verse 20 says, will you never enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, where do I find this righteousness? Where do I find this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? You find it in Christ. You find it in Christ and you find a new mercy that he writes upon your heart and enables your heart to receive through first tasting the mercy that he gives to you. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law and all of its commands and all of its demands. He fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill. And he proclaims to us the God that the law reveals to us. But where we consider the Old Testament to be a God of perhaps anger and a God of violence, we see he is a God of love who redeems and rescues through the death of his son for our sins. If you do not know Christ, I urge you to stop trying to find righteousness on your own, but look to Christ and live through his righteousness, through faith in him. Church family, as we conclude, let us resolve that we will pursue greatness in the kingdom of God through making much of Christ's righteousness. A righteousness that doesn't call us to inaction, but a righteousness that calls us to bold faith in him. Pursuit of righteousness in this life, but righteousness born out of mercy because we are recipients of mercy. And as we do this, as we pursue this righteousness, as we have this on our minds, as we set our eyes upon our Savior, what we will see is that the Old Testament that seems so complex, seems so weighty, so heavy, comes to life in ways in which we see our Lord Jesus. We see the shadow of him who is to come. You want to see your Lord Jesus more clearly? Look at your Old Testament more deeply. You want to love your Lord Jesus more fervently? See the redemptive work that he did as thousands of years of Old Testament anticipated him. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Look to your great king. Let's pray. Lord, we set our eyes on Christ. We set our hearts on him. He fulfills all that your Old Testament anticipates and he calls us towards a righteousness that is only found in him. So Lord, we ask your mercy. We ask your mercy to make much of Christ. We ask your mercy to cling to Christ. We ask your mercy to free us from self-righteousness that might cause us to take our eyes off of Christ or never set our eyes on Christ. But give us hearts of faith in the risen Christ, 
in the ruling Christ, in Christ who is our righteousness. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.